What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And recording from my office today, we've got Jake Dello and a new member, Ciara Mitchell. Kiara. Whoops. <laughs> oh, man. Now, what a great start. What a great start. I was waiting. I was going to say, is he going to get it right? Shit. Is he? Is he? That's what I meant. Kiara Mitchell. We pronounce it differently in the U.S. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Irish, so it's a hot Got save. It. Damn it. Okay, so not a great start. And then uh, Pete and Gabby are out again. A couple uh, quick hits before we get into the show. One, shout out to friend of the pod, Uri Friedman, who writes for The Atlantic. He did a piece on, it's called literally the Bernie Sanders Doctrine. So on the one hand, it's way ridiculously too early, like laughably too early to try and identify doctrine for candidates, like foreign policy doctrine. On the other hand, we need to try to as much as we can, uh, since the presidency has like gobs of, of authority in the space of foreign policy. Like that's the primary space where presidents can do things. Domestic stuff is actually uh, a bit farcical because they're so constrained. They're not constrained at all in foreign policy. So it would be good if we knew what people believed about the world as they're running for president. I think people are sort of assuming doctrines are sort of the same as the Obama presidency. No forever wars, get our troops out. That's oh, the, the rhetoric of, of the yeah, Obama. The rhetoric. Yeah, before he became president. Before. Because everybody drone sees strikes. him as like, yeah, <laughs> before the drone he... president now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is actually a bit of a lesson and why it's like hard to pin down a doctrine kind of beforehand. Because yeah. Obama ran, like people forget this, like he ran in 08 as like an anti-war leftist on foreign policy engage the enemy sit down with frankly sit down with kim jong-un yeah, um yeah. get out of iraq there was no sign that he was going to surge in afghanistan like i don't and, and then the reality of being in the white house kind of mitigate yeah. mani- uh influences that well he was anti-war compared to bush right yes well so it is yeah, all relative yeah, to, yeah. yes it's, that's it's, a very good that, point i think you got to think it relative to who he was running against or even the guy he was running against McCain, was it, at the time? In 08, yeah. In 08? Yeah. Pretty anti-war compared to oh, yeah. McCain as McCain well. McCain was on the fucking campaign trail saying, yeah, yeah, bomb, 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 Iran. So, <laughs> fucking nuts. Oh, forget about that. Um, and so, this uh, Uri's piece, I've been, I'm writing a, spoiler alert, a book on uh, progressive foreign policy. And from what I've seen, Uri gets Bernie Sanders's like flavor of foreign policy pretty right, or at least as right as you can, given that it's probably subject to change, you know? And, but one thing that jumped out was that in a New York Times questionnaire about foreign policy that came out around the same time, like in the last few days, Bernie had like a lot of answers to the foreign policy questions that you would expect, kind of uh, pro-engagement, very internationalist, um, but also very like anti-authoritarian at the same time, anti-imperial and blending that together and focusing heavily on inequality. All of that is like what you would expect. But he had two answers on um, 
use of force that were like very surprising. And I think that like a lot of Bernie bros and anti-imperialists, they didn't make a bunch of stink about it because he's their guy. But like they were fucking aggressive. They were they were way right of Warren who answered the same questions, for example. And so the, the two big questions were like one was, would you be willing to use military force uh, for humanitarian intervention? And so that's like kind of like a Libya situation or a Rwanda a genocide, something like that. And Bernie just flatly said, yeah. And there is a tradition uh, of anti-imperialism on the left that looks like isolationism. But there's also yeah. a tradition of like fighting the fucking fascists abroad. Well, that's, the that's the sort of cosmopolitan idea of part of the left that Bernie appeals to. It's the yeah, idea. there's a tension yeah. between these two camps. You know, like um, every, no one wants to use military, but everyone wants to fight the Nazis. That's right. There are conditions where you have to fight if you believe in something. And if you believe in international solidarity and human yeah. rights in particular, yeah. Well, they were leftists on the Bernie spectrum back in the Second World War. They were pacifists. Yeah. They were not popular at all. Can you really be of the people if you let something like that continue? So I think I think it's true to what his ideals are. Well, so the second one's a little more troubling. Uh, and I'm not throwing shade at the, the brother. But the, the, he the, he was asked. The New York Times questionnaire was like very much a gotcha. They're trying. They're it's a bunch of fucking war hawks writing yeah. it. So they're trying to like narrow and maneuver the candidates into basically answering hard national security questions. And so they asked like, would you be willing to consider a preemptive strike against North Korea conducting a missile test? And he again, Bernie again said just flatly, yes. And that is not the right answer. There is nobody except for like the hockeyest hawks who think that's the right answer. Um, I know it's hard for the Bernie set to like absorb or like take on. This was just an, a misunderstanding of the question. It has to be. A lot of people are saying on Twitter like, well, because I raised this publicly. Like, hey, guys. And a lot of people on Twitter were like, well, of course, you'd be willing to consider anything at any time. Anything's possible, but he probably wouldn't do it. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not the you don't escalate and create a conflict where there was not one because it's a test. If it's if if you think it's going to strike U.S. territory, totally different question, right? Like if you think an imminent attack that you're trying to preempt, different kind of question. But the question posed was like a missile test. So if you've identified it as a test, are you really going to start World War III over that? This must be a misunderstanding. I'm willing to say it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'll give him credit that far. That it's a misunderstanding or it's out of context because that doesn't sound consistent. So the other thing is these are answered, these questionnaires, I know this from being on three campaigns now, they're Ooh. answered by staff, not, not by the... <laughs> This show's like one big flex. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah, be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the nature of the game. Um, but like the, the the questionnaires are answered by staff, not by candidates. Oh, okay. And well, so like Buttigieg answered basically like none of the questions and he caught a bunch of shit, but it was his staff who answered none of the questions. Anyways, Bernie's doing well and nobody seems to vote on foreign policy anyway. So it's all kind of a big fat whatever. But for people who care enough about the world to listen to this show uh it's kind of a big deal um but what even so like take this the the bernie sanders answer about preemptive strikes on north korea as a misunderstanding because like his north korea policy is very sound and very forward-leaning and very progressive trying to end the korean war definitely negotiate even willing to sit down with kim jong-un oh it's it, political optics are bad so what? And so like preemptive strikes don't really fit with that foreign policy. <laughs> so uh, I suspect that this was just lost in translation a bit. But it does indicate that like he is comfortable and certain the people who staff him and make recommendations to him are going to be comfortable under certain conditions with using force, with having a military. So that you and that shouldn't be surprising to anybody because that just means that you have a brain. It's he's obviously going to be more reserved in the use of force than like the average, you know, presidential candidate. But I just, there's a segment of Bernie supporters who are like very utopian in their thinking and they read into Bernie all their hopes and dreams that he does not say. 
that he they're like positions that he does not take that they impute to him and so like they're setting themselves up for disappointment if he actually wins and he's he'll, he'll be more left than obama i'm pretty sure but like there will be that same kind of return to reality i think like it's the nature of like policy processes the other shout out is to ilhan omar who introduced a bill in the house called the global peace building act of 2020 this is so like low-hanging fruit take the fucking pass the bill man this it's what it does is it reprograms five billion dollars of uh uh overseas can oco money that the pentagon has department of defense it's OCO uh, overseas contingency operations. It's how we, it's, it's the budgeting gimmick that the Pentagon uses to fund um, Afghanistan and Iraq and other wars uh, and to stay out of the normal budget. So like when you talk about how much defense spending was, oftentimes the OCO money is not part of that. Big fucking tr magic trick. Is it a legal magic trick? If, yeah, yeah. If, if anyone else was to do it? Would it be legal? Because it sort of sounds like keeping the income off your tax return. To this like, well, it kind of is. Yeah, and yeah, it's existed since the Bush administration. Okay, and um, we tried to get rid of it under Obama, but it's a congressional th like so it's, it's like Congress that does it. Patriot yeah. carryover sort of thing. Yeah, and um, Warren has railed against it and said she would shut okay. down the OCO slush fund. I know Bernie is not for it. He hasn't been as like technocratically pointed on yeah, it because he's yeah. not the technocratic candidate okay <laughs> um but uh, but like everybody recognizes that it's a problem because it's the source uh, it's the spigot for the funding for endless wars but this this bill would reprogram five billion dollars from um the oco account for global peace building initiatives civil society building grassroots What's the fucking problem here, right? And in some, it's a down payment on a, I think a lot of people are viewing it as like a down payment on a like US Department of Peace, which is extremely controversial. So like the, there's a, there's a, there's a pacifist left that has supported this idea since like the 1970s. It raises all kinds of ridiculous questions that you shouldn't have to ask. Like, what is the State Department supposed to be for? <laughs> you know, like it's very well intentioned. Uh, if it existed, I feel like it would do a lot of good. But making it exist is like next to impossible. And this, I, from what I've heard, like some people are viewing this, at, like I said, the down payment, it's like moving in that direction. Don't view it as that. Just view it as like, take some money, a rounding error for endless wars and allocate it to peace building initiatives. Not fucking crazy. Not, not hard to do, right? One more shout out to Michael Foolilove, who runs the Lowy Institute. It's a, a think tank in Australia. He wrote a piece in the Atlantic. Also, it's two times for the Atlantic this week. It was called How I Lost My Faith in America. And he is he's super pro-American, uh, as, as most Australians are. Super pro-alliance. Australia, for as much as like the UK is historically seen as like the special relationship, it's actually Australia that's been the closest mate. Every war, even the stupid ones, since the fucking World War I, every war they've been in with the US, especially the stupid ones. They send the most troops to the stupid ones. And that shows you the bond, the loyalty, the solidarity. And he is of that uh, mindset. But he watched the what he called like the sham farcical Senate impeachment trial and the uh, sham farcical State of the Union address that Trump turned into a reality TV show, throwing out T-shirts to the crowd. And he was like, this is... This is uh, devastating to the rule of law. It's devastating to the seriousness of purpose that America needs if they're going to be a stabilizing force in Asia uh, at a minimum. And he's like, Trump has shaken my faith in the U.S. This election is the one chance America has to potentially right the ship. And if they don't, the whole thing's done. We're we're back to like a Hobbesian world, basically. Which I take to I he didn't say this, but I think that's a world where Australia has nukes. Just to be clear, mm. <laughs> and so the Australian Parliament hasn't voted on it yet, have they? But they were certainly people are bringing it up. The it's in the discourse now, yeah. Yeah. So like it used to be. So there's a small segment of like strategic analysts in Australia who think hard about like heavy conventional weapons, strategic having strategic conventional bombers and a nuclear capability and they've thought this way for a long time 
um, they would fit in well in Washington, right? Yeah. But that that uh, discourse has been suppressed because of the alliance, because they have extended deterrence guarantees from the U.S. And also, not for nothing, they face no immediate national security threats. You know, well, like, you they're so seen. isolated. So Australia, like what happened? So Australia and New Zealand are still allies. And if Australia goes nuclear, and or if the strategic analysts in Australia have their way, where does that leave New Zealand? Particularly in a world where there is no unipolar, you know, hegemon kind of backstopping global order. That's a difficult position for small states to be in. Maybe it will be the only country to survive if there's a nuclear war. If we. Uh, unless Australia brings the nuclear war to the Antipodes because sure. of their nukes and post-INF missiles, ground-launched missiles that they host by the U.S. that China has to target in the event of a conflict. We are in a very bad spot if Australia gets nuclear weapons. Well, like we talked about the last couple of weeks, like with Tonga, right? Yeah. The Pacific Islands, I think people are sleeping on this. The I Pacific believe... Islands are becoming like a geopolitical hotspot. Well, we, this is... I'm, I can't... I can't believe it hasn't been reported on really anywhere that I've seen. Oh, it's been in like, yeah, like Radio New Zealand and stuff. Like CNN's not picking it no, up. No, yeah. no, but countries literally saying, no, no, don't worry about their sovereign voices. We'll speak for them. Yeah. Trust us. And I that's, mean, like, but Pacific that's what Islanders our Islanders are like all about their sovereignty and anti-colonialism well, and independence. Yeah. And like, then they're bartering with the devil yes. and literally eroding that through the transaction. And like, it's whatever. When I say our fault, I don't mean collectively as a nation, but our government's fault because New Zealand has neglected the Pacific Islands for a very long time. So is the U.S. I'm worried about like, this is, this is way ahead of where everybody else is on this but i'm worried about like settler colonialism yeah by the chinese in the pacific because the flag follows trade that's how empires have gotten made in the 19th and 20th centuries and that's the pattern that i'm seeing people are reluctant to call it out as such because everybody is self-censoring because of fucking money that's if, if that's what's happening it's happening in a place that's not Kyrgyzstan and Nepal and yeah, Mongolia yeah. where there's fucking nobody it's happening in an area that is the traditional sphere of influence frankly uh even though that's very illiberal of New Zealand and Australia and geopolitically it is America's backyard and so there's all kinds of room for bad shit to happen and the fact that like people aren't focused on it makes it doubly concerning and it, it's it's hard to not get entangled in this when it's your backyard Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. Alright, for Prediction Market this week, it is actually from Gabby. So she's helping us out all nice. the way down to Needham. So, will the United States withdraw troops from the Philippines before June 2020? So, uh, I'm going to say no, but the context here is important and it's very bleak, which is that... Uh, Duterte, the sort of Trumpian Philippine pseudo-dictator, he, uh, who was democratically elected, ironically, he, <laughs> he for a long time threatened to cancel the visiting forces agreement that was established in the 90s with the U.S. He did, didn't he? And then he just did cancel yeah, it. Yeah. So this is a huge deal. Um, the visiting forces agreement is what provides like U.S. troops there. there it makes them subject to U.S. law, not Philippine law. And so it's like a protection measure. Yeah. Um, and there are other there are other features of the agreement, but that's core. Um, and that's one of the things that the U.S. always tries to secure whenever it puts troops into a forward area. It's like if they conduct actions that are illegal, the judgment for that, the criteria need to be U.S. laws. And in most cases, that's stricter anyway. That's that's the sort of point. And there's a bigger symbolic rupture here that Duterte has started. And uh, ISIS, well, I'm not going to say, I was going to say, I suspect he's on the take from Chinese, because, but I think it's just that he's, I think and he's he just... might be, but like he's Trumpian. Like he entertains um, strategic alignment with China. He yeah. said when he, when he made this announcement, he said that he wants to like subordinate himself to China's ideological flow, which <laughs> is like, <laughs> which means like your bases are welcome. Make yeah. us a protectorate. Make us part of your empire slash sphere of influence, uh, which is very disturbing. 
Um, particularly because the U.S. plows a lot of money in the form of like security assistance into the Philippines, and the Islamic State has a pretty fucking robust presence in the Philippines. Hugely, and robust. so that's that's a big issue. There is on the left though in the U.S. There's a lot of there's a segment of of even people in Congress who are against providing security assistance to the Philippines again, sort of against the alliance itself because of Duterte, because of his crackdown on journalists and press freedom and extrajudicial fucking killings kill your local drug dealer yeah it it doesn't matter about proving they're out they are a drug dealer just kill them first and then worry about the proving afterwards yeah or don't worry about the proving. or don't or Or just chuck a joint on their body yeah and just hope that they get caught (laughs) so like that yeah yeah so this is this is controversial you know, my own mind is not made up about like what sh- what we should do about the Philippines. Yeah. But this is, if you're looking at this as a trend line, this is the latest data point suggesting that the U.S.-Philippines alliance is in like big existential trouble. And it just happens to be a country, a territory that China also has its eye on uh, and is an important member of the Association of South- Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. And China has worked over time for the past two decades to divide and conquer ASEAN itself. They've worked to paralyze ASEAN from being able to do anything meaningful by uh, suborning Cambodia and Laos and others. Yeah. Question two. Even with the spread of the coronavirus, Hong Kong has continued to open its borders with China. Do you think Hong Kong will close them by the end of March? I'm so sick of coronavirus questions. Yeah. Hey, hey, don't. I hate the questions. (laughs) I find them fucking impossible to answer and boring is it because um, you were wrong on the first one van maybe yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe there's no flex to be had in being wrong <laughs> so i'm gonna say that hong kong what was the the deadline by march march no not by march it could happen this there is like some geopolitics involved here that are kind of interesting to watch but i'm gonna say no not by march we need to ban the coronavirus questions okay <laughs> okay all right unless it gets way worse then <laughs> then we might have to address it again all right guys this is the last you'll ever hear of the coronavirus it doesn't exist until it gets it's, here yeah, yeah, until, until it gets here Question three, will Trump actually have a nuclear summit with Kim Jong-un before June this year? So I'm going to say no, um, and I certainly hope not, right? Um, One, because they're not useful. Kim Jong-un has basically rejected them, like he doesn't want them anymore. And then um, there was a CNN story uh, that came out a few days ago where it was a bunch of anonymous officials like off the record off or non-attribution. So we don't know who said it, but a couple Trump administration officials said that Trump told them that he doesn't want a summit this year because there's no upside. And at this point, Trump is like famously incapable of learning, but he seems to have gotten the message that Kim Jong-un's not going to make any grand concessions to him. But also, it's not really up to Trump at this point because no. Kim Jong-un doesn't the, – the North Korean media statements have suggested that Kim Jong-un thought he was giving Trump something by doing these summits. And then Kim Jong-un got nothing in return for the summits. <laughs> and so, like, you know, through the looking glass, like from North Korea's perspective, this is like starting to embarrass Kim Jong-un a little bit, you know? Like it started out as giving him prestige and now it's becoming like a punchline. That can't be allowed to happen. Yeah. If you're a North Korean, there's no way that can be allowed to happen. And of course, they're they're not going to move on their nuclear weapons in any way or compromise them no. during this, this year. This like They know Trump's about to change out. They pay a lot of attention to American politics, bizarrely. Well, I guess it's their existence on the line, yeah. so it's like yeah. not so bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, so like it's not the no summit before June. No summit before June. All right, it's prediction market this week. Boom. Let's jump into Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Time for Stay Off Twitter. We've only got uh, two tweets this week, relatively short. The first one comes from Nuclear Memes for Atomic Teens. That's the name. That's their Twitter handle. I shit you not. I like that. Could you have said that any, like, more like a boomer van. <laughs> Could you have, if if Gabby was here, she would be roasting you, what? man. How else am I supposed to say it, a- man? Atomic memes. Nuclear for... memes for atomic teens. 
Yeah, see, there you go. You got to enunciate it, yeah. which I know is hard for the Kiwi accent. Oh, oh, oh now, now you're going to throw shade. All right. All right. Nuclear memes for atomic teens. Boom. Not bad. Uh, so, so the tweet is super short. It just says, pay your interns. And then it says our first hashtag wage theft Wednesday, which I didn't know was a hashtag, uh, is about the Stimson Center, which is a, uh, a medium-ish think tank in Washington. Basically, this is putting on blast the think tanks in Washington who don't pay their interns. But that's all the think tanks, except I think one, all of them. And so the reason I wanted to flag this was because, well, there's like multiple levels to this shit. On the one hand, I don't pay anybody here. So, <laughs> so this is all free I'm happy labor. you said that, man. Because I was gonna say, I was gonna say, so who did this really put on blast? Pay your intern. So, so oh, got, this could be spicy. We've got a team here that is doing it for the love of the game. Yeah. Um, and the hats off to them. Mm. They're not getting nothing out of it. It's just that the stuff they get out of it, you can't put a price on. It. <laughs> okay. To be honest, there's no money involved here. Like I'm in the I'm in the red. Like I lose money on this so far. Like my advertising revenue doesn't match the expenses. So I'm I'm starving. Can I have some bread? <laughs> he won't even give me a loaf of bread to eat. God damn it! I shouldn't I'm just have done I'm this. just stuck in the hole. I editing done this. this podcast. I shouldn't have done this. Despite despite these circumstances locally, what I can see with a clear view about Washington is that there is a permanent underclass in the foreign policy industry of unpaid labor and and sometimes marginally paid labor. And it forces, I I sidestepped this because I served in the military. So like, I didn't have to deal with this, but I saw it at every think tank I was at, which is like, you you have to do your own version of hustling if you're not going to join the military, where you have to work a series of often overlapping unpaid internships, where you're trying to kiss ass, develop mentors, network, finish grad school and because none of that pays your rent you have to you know work at starbucks and a restaurant at the same time and so you are genuinely like patchworking your life it's very stressful and that situation of that like underclass that's a permanent situation and there there are almost no on ramps to the next rung of the career ladder you have to win the lottery basically to receive the patronage of somebody successful who has resources and a network who's already established, you have to count on their goodwill. Like they're a fucking feudal Lord, right? It's fucking disgusting. Uh, and it's super unfair. And it, it's, it's partially a function of supply and demand because there is like a seemingly infinite supply of people who study, you know, international relations or some cognate of it who want to get involved in this stuff and foreign policy, as we've talked about many times, very elite industry elite and elitist and so like it's insular it's and so like how do you get in you have to hustle your fucking ass off and get lucky if you only hustle and don't get lucky you will not have a career and so like and if you get you get unless you're like the son of a bush or something you you have to like an aristocrat like you have famous parents except for that situation even being lucky is not enough. Like you still have to have the like the hustle. Yeah, like all jokes aside, well, I do this because I love yeah international relations. Well, but I love if you I was, guys. Yeah. Oh, thank. Oh, man. Is it a very millennial Gen Z sort of thing to expect to be paid for an internship? Because it's the exact same sort of thing as foreign policy industry and the radio industry that I came from when I came here. You only get a job and someone leaves on. And in order to be noticed, you just have to give them free shit and do free labor and give and make be the best value, which unfortunately means them not paying you. It's true and it's common, but it's also mega exploitive, exploitative, right? And so that's, that's the problem. Like, it's just not fair. It's a, it is like the functioning, like supply and demand logic here. Right. But it's just not, it's not just. And the problem is that it's set up to stay this way. Like, it's not clear to me how this actually ends, except through the farsighted, you know, wisdom or beneficence of somebody who sets up a think tank that decides to pay their interns, which there is uh, at Center for New American Security. They do pay interns 
I did work experience in a tech tech industry and they didn't pay their interns because the university told them not to. And I believe the guy called it slave labor. So the university told the told the company company to not pay the students. Dude, that's fuck. That's (laughs) that's like a conspiracy of capital. Like (laughs) that's not. I'm not anti-capital. To be clear, I'm not a Marxist. But I am critical of capital, and this is a good example of like, that's number critiques. twelve. <laughs> we need I am Gabby to, to cut together yeah, a clip of yeah. like all the times I've declared my non-Marxist. Yeah, I can give I can I can give rule twelve because, funnily enough, it sort of speaks to the elitism of the industry because the only people that have the power to change that, who have the power to pay their interns, are the people benefiting the most from not doing it. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a it's circular. I mean, people get jobs in government and the intelligence community and stuff. Uh, and that's sort of the main hope is like while they're sitting on the bench accruing experience, even though it's free, they're sort of marginally contributing to their CV, building up more and more while they're throwing out applications into a black hole where the fucking employer never responds. Like I've I've gone through that part, too. You know, they're making a bet that is like where the deck is stacked against them. It's like a losing bet. But enough people. It works out for them that the system keeps going. Um, so anyways, I don't know how I feel about the hashtag wage theft Wednesday. Um, that's like us. That's pretty, that's, that's on blast. You know, like that's, that's harsh because the Stimson center. So like, I'm very sympathetic to this meme. That's why I brought it out. Right. For this tweet. But like the Stimson center is giving people who are like underqualified, basically access and experience which is why the people do it i just i still think it's fucking unfair well i agree i agree with you van normally i'm the first one to shit on capitalism whenever i can but i i mean internship that's sort of what it is it is experience yeah, yeah. and i'm i agree with you on this one it, it makes sense yeah. that you don't pay for experience that you're getting in the industry you know add to your cv essentially that's what it is yeah so anyways shout out to nuclear memes for <laughs> atomic how can i say it fucking cool nuclear memes for atomic teams there we go okay and then uh the other tweet is by uh one of the homies, Ankit Panda, who writes for The Diplomat, but he's like a prolific foreign policy uh, writer slash journal slash journalist slash intellectual. Anyway, uh, he's got a book on North Korea coming out soon. And so he's responding to another friend of the pod named Kingston Reef, who's like a well-known uh, arms control guy. And so Kingston Reef, I got to set this up. Kingston Reef quotes Robert O'Brien, who's the national security advisor. Robert O'Brien says, quote, So far, the Chinese are not interested in arms control. We're hopeful that if we can move forward with some arms control negotiations with the Russians, that there will be pressure on the Chinese or a desire on the Chinese part to join in those efforts. And so that's the quote from the National Security Advisor, who's generally out to lunch. And Ankit says, what? That's not how this works at all. Is the idea that Xi Jinping will notice how much fun Trump and Putin are having talking arms control and then get FOMO? Fear of missing out for fucking boomers. (laughs) And then he says, I'm not opposed to bringing China to the table to talk about these things, but these people simply aren't serious. These people being the Trump administration. That's fucking right. Money, right? That's why this tweet is a shout out because uh, the fucking Trump administration is not serious. Uh, about arms control they're not serious about fucking negotiations with anybody so like it's it's very disingenuous to pretend like you're actually interested in arms control when you walk away from the fucking iran nuclear deal from the open skies treaty when you're letting new start die on the vine as of right now when you've walked away from the intermediate nuclear forces treaty right you've reversed the landmine ban like how what you, can you yeah. do to make this fucking world more dangerous than you've already done, man? Let's talk about arms control as we are releasing low-yield nuclear weapons. Yeah. It's, it's, it's horrendous. There's no theory of the case here of like, oh, we negotiate something with Russia and that will cause China to want to bandwagon. Hey, I too want to restrain my weapons. Let me get in on that. That's not how it fucking works. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I can't believe people actually think that shit. Like, it's just... <laughs> 
<laughs> Who Victor, thinks that? Victor Shaw came up with this concept. He, he ended up working in the Bush administration. He's a bit of a hawk himself, actually. But uh, in the North Korea context, he came up with this concept of hawk engagement. Mm-hmm. And it was the idea. It's, it ended up becoming Bush's like North Korea policy, basically. But it's the idea that you in, you pursue engagement, you pursue diplomacy. So you, you're, you're championing that rhetoric. Like, yeah, we're for diplomacy. We're for engagement. But you do it in such a way... With by like intransigent demands and the way you structure it and everything in such a way that it's basically like a very hard line that sabotages the negotiations. But so like you've pursued diplomacy so that you can rule out diplomacy later and then be have moral high ground to do worse shit. Okay. So you're clearing. It's a way of clearing diplomacy off the decks so that you can legitimately pursue something harder line. Yeah. Well, at least I tried. And this was one of the concerns that people like me had about <clears throat> about Trump's diplomacy with North Korea, yeah. because when you looked at how the negotiations were structured, when you looked at the positions that both sides had, the irreducible conflict of interest between each side, what they were saying and wanting, there was no way this was going to work. But the fact that Trump was saying diplomacy and saying peace brought a lot of people along and like suspension of disbelief. But like any clear eyed person could see that like the reality did not match the rhetoric at all. And the fact that you had somebody like John Bolton <laughs> being like, yeah, yeah, let's go meet Kim Jong-un. Yeah. That should be a red flag, man. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and now, predictably, Bolton has come out on the other side, and he's like, "Look, the clock is ticking. We got to bomb him." You know, <laughs> we tried diplomacy. That the whole point of going to the summits for Bolton was like, we tried, and it didn't work, and the threat is worse than ever. Therefore, uh, anyways, shout out to Ankit. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it and converse your reckons. Alright, for armchair analysis this week, we're going back to WPR. Shout out, subscribe. World Politics Review, WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. That's it. And this is from Daniel McDowell. How sanctions overreach could undermine the US dollar dominance. So continuing on from our discussion last week, Mm. I guess... And I agree more with this one than I did last week. Uh, it essentially reinforces the idea that the US dollar is globally hegemonic. Yeah. But it also states that because of the dollar's global use, it relies on its economic attractiveness to market actors. But in using it to settle cross-border trade and alike, which you'd expect from a hegemonic dollar... It creates political vulnerabilities. Like the American sanction policies are causing governments to find de-dollarization policies, which limit their ability to be hurt by sanctions in the future, especially advers- adversaries like Russia and Turkey, who have increased its their gold holdings twice. They've doubled it. Yeah. To essentially mitigate the damage that America can cause. And Daniel McDowell is sort of pointing out, not so much having an opinion on it, but pointing out that this exists. And the piece is really good. I encourage listeners to go and read it themselves because it's essentially a laundry list of events that prove this is happening. And I could go into it now, but it's it's a long article. Yeah, it's armchair analysis. It's armchair it's not analysis. analysis. Yeah, <laughs> and it, th- there's a there's a couple really good passages that I really like. It says because the United States has used its dollar dominance as a cudgel, it's only natural that adversaries are reconsidering their currency choices because they've used it as a weapon in the past. People know what's in their arsenal now. They know how to try and protect themselves. Yeah. And the mounting use of sanctions has raised global awareness of the links between dollar neutrality, American power, and political vulnerability. I think that one was no, pretty yeah that's no. it's on the money it's, it's a great it's piece. on point it's a great piece um great piece of analysis the world politics review we've said it before i can't help but plug them here they do great actual analysis yeah right like yeah. this is not a fucking hot take this no. is an analysis empirically of a situation that's happening that's strategically important um and it reinforces this this dovetails uh, quite nicely with the concept of weaponized interdependence uh we talked about mm-hmm. it in an uh, episode a long time ago about by four weeks ago, we yeah, about two two scholars, Henry Farrell and Abe Newman, have been publishing all this um, 
very good research, some of it very like accessible and poppy and some of it very rigorous and academic, centered on the notion that interdependence, we used to think of it as this unmitigated good, but actually the bonds of interdependence do not form symmetrically most of the time. It disproportionately empowers somebody, some node in the system. And that node ends up reaping power from that arrangement. And that power is latent coercive leverage. And that is precisely the situation that we find ourselves in with China, yeah. especially in Asia. But that is the default situation of like the unipolar moment of yeah. the U.S. since the end of the Cold War. So the fact that America's currency is the reserved currency for the world allows America to fund endless wars and run crazy deficits. And it gives in the SWIFT system, um, dollar clearing system internationally, like America has so much ability to block international transactions and influence uh, economic policies of other countries because of its centrality to the economic system, yeah. right? Because of dollar dominance. Yeah. So the that turns into weapon that gets weaponized and naturally we're that naturally we are, yeah and we are naturally yeah. worried about why when we see china doing the same thing because we have been doing that for a while and we are not fucking xi jinping or no. at least we haven't been up until now but. well <laughs> give it time uh, it, it points out for me sort of the dangers of non-economic you know, international relations because when this fails, when the adversaries of the United States being naturally undemocratic, when they realize what they can do to defend themselves against economic sanctions, it just increases the likability, likability, whatever, increases the likelihood of war, increases the likelihood of armed conflict. If economically you're not going to be able to stop them, then there's only really two other ways, diplomatically and militarily it, it challenges the old like gen x boomer view of political economy as like this positive yeah. sum area like you're like the economy is the realm of absolute gains this is right. this is the return of politics to the economy in ways that like you know people who you know went to school in the 80s and 90s and 70s that they like thought we had moved on from or they yeah. tried to argue that we've moved on from and like this is very much a return to like bringing relative gains back into economics so and it's just and it's the fact is like whether you think it's good or bad it's generally bad it's happening yeah. right and so the question is now like what do we do about it and one of the trend lines that this piece points out that's so good is that like u.s overuse of sanctions is causing a it's leading to the eventual gradual decentering of the u.s in the global economy it's look it's it's forcing other states to look for alternative reserve currencies even though there yeah. is no like you're not going to use the fucking chinese yuan as your reserve currency you know what i mean well we say that but now. a basket well, you know something yeah, like yeah well that's why russia increased it's not it's not they didn't just increase their gold um holdings they doubled it they more than doubled it the bank of moscow and 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 uh retaliation to the crimea sanctions yeah. that the united that the united states put on them and that's that's not inconsequential no, even worse is that like in in Europe, so the Europeans back the Iran nuclear deal, right? Yeah. And so they're they've been very opposed to the ratcheting up of of sanctions on Iran that Trump has pursued, and in response to seeing the U.S. force more and more sanctions on Iran, the European European think tanks have been looking at ways to create a parallel financial system, and China itself has already been creating a parallel economic order through institutions through the belt and road yeah, aiab yeah. maritime silk road all of that stuff and so like this use it's not just russia it's not just china no, it's, it's also not. the europeans and it's everybody with half a brain so even your allies are trying to looking out. for ways to hedge yeah like nobody wants to be on the receiving end and so we should we should continue to worry about like making decisions as states that makes china more central to your economy and the global yeah, economy especially yeah. but also the u.s right also i mean like every this is a this is a strategic area now uh and we all have to make calculations based on a recognition that it's not all positive sum anymore in the economy i mean one of the like old school rules of statecraft i mean like old like you know the old white aristocrat yeah, yeah, guy like yeah. like john Kerry. like <laughs> <laughs> the old rules of statecraft was like keep your powder dry Right. The walk softly, carry a big stick. The more you use your power, the more you erode your power. Like you have to be conscientious. Yeah. And what we've what we found in like 
Obama was so guilty of this. Sanctions and drone strikes, because there was low strategic risk in the near term, the they were like the tools of first resort. It's like they're the go-to because you know that there's almost no chance that they will start a war. And so that's your that's your standard. But actually, if you think long term, there's huge strategic risks in doing huge, that shit, huge. right? Because of like huge. the creating these cycles of terrorists. I dude, okay, small tangent. I saw a fucking study, uh, I think by CSIS, that said that since 2001, since 9/11, yeah, the number. So the U.S. has plowed trillions of dollars into fighting terrorism. How many people have we killed? How many people have yeah. we lost? Et cetera, et cetera. How much money have we spent? Since 2001, the number of Salafi jihadist militants in the world has quadrupled. No. That is the ultimate metric of fucking failure. Could there be a more damning statistic about America's policy on on the Middle East, on counterterrorism, than quadrupling the threat because of how you responded to it? Yeah. I, I don't want to relativize terrorism at all but i can't imagine your house getting droned is going to turn you pro united states yeah no regardless yeah. regardless and, and that's not trying it's, to it's relativize the same, what it's a, they but do. it's the same principle here too like yeah when you've got this yeah. sanctions power that nobody else has which is the case with up to up through the obama era nobody else had this ability to like impose sanctions everywhere and have them have effect uh when you start overusing that people are going to start looking for ways to manage their vulnerability their exposure to that power and that's where we're at that's what the piece is basically capturing in a much more analytically sound way than our bloviating <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to world politics review shout out to daniel mcdowell daniel mcdowell all right now it's time for ask me anything where people ask me anything so kiara's got our ask me anything's this week yeah. Kiara. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got two questions from David Andrews, who's a PhD candidate at La Trobe University. So the first one, as someone who studied in the US but now teaches in New Zealand, what are your reflections on the US versus British style tertiary, tertiary education models and merits of undertaking a PhD in one system or another? Oh, man. So the British system of like uh, academia and doing PhDs, the main difference is that you don't have coursework in, so like New Zealand, Australia, UK, you jump straight when you're like a PhD student, you're basically a PhD candidate. So you go straight to dissertation. Um, And that's, that's, to me, that's hugely problematic because like I learned so much, like the dissertation I wanted to write when I started my PhD program would have been awful and not succeeded i would not have gotten my phd but through the like several years of coursework i had to take as part of the u.s phd system i I got exposed to different literatures different ways of thinking and making sense of the world different research methods and i got to sort of figure out where my niche was and it helped me refine what i wanted to like focus on for the research and uh, that wouldn't have happened had I not gone through the years of awful coursework. And so the U.S. system of like uh, PhDing is, I think, much, much harder in the sense that it's more rigorous. But if you can, if you have like this really hardcore good idea for basically a book and you can go straight into your PhD, then getting the UK model IR PhD or whatever is not a bad choice because it's way faster and way cheaper. Well, coursework being what like it's like what we have to do now essentially like essays lectures and it's, it's basically mass you take master's level courses but you do way more not you do a larger number of them in the u.s okay. so like you and then there are some courses that are only for phd students at most universities but you're usually like like for me i had to take like 54 uh so one course is like three credits i had to take 54 credits of courses at the master's or above level. And then after I did all that coursework, I got to uh, go through a process of doing comprehensive exams, oral and written exams. So like the written exam is testing your knowledge of the entire literature of the field. So like all of IR, comparative politics, political theory, 
and it's a written exam. And then an oral exam, you do the same thing, but with a panel of faculty members asking you questions live about economic interdependence, about balancing versus bandwagoning, about causes of war, all that shit. And then only when you pass the oral and the written exams, you've demonstrated your genuine mastery of the field, what exists, then you can start working on your dissertation proposal. And then you go back and forth trying to refine that. And that's when you're really into the dissertation process. As someone that might be going down that route, fuck that. <laughs> I agree on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Prepare the music system and it's less likely to bankrupt me with because no yeah. interest on student loans unless you go overseas. So yeah. the, the, the recommendation that most political scientists in the US have is that you shouldn't pursue a PhD on your own dime. I I partially did on my own dime and I partially had scholarship, but the idea was like there are the the supply of PhDs exceeds the demand for them anyway. And so if you're going to do it, you're basically taking a vow of poverty and and you really do have to have like a, a love of the field or whatever, a love of the game. And so you only do it if um, you are basically getting paid, like your tuition's covered, you're getting a stipend. And so a lot of the political scientists who end up on the job market in the U.S. are on some form of scholarship. It's It's very, very inadvisable generally to pay out of pocket for your phd i'm a weird case and then you know this british style stuff the thing is like you can start a phd in the uk system or whatever new zealand british european style system the odds that you will finish are much lower if you haven't gone through the ringer like in the us and there is a stigma like just being honest even to be totally honest even here which is why i got recruited to come work here. There's a stigma that like an American PhD all else equal is is more valuable than a European style PhD. Not everybody thinks that, you know, there's lots of caveats to put on that, but that's the general impression. Um, and so you have more mobility career-wise if you're coming out of a US PhD program. But on the substance of it, you know, like I work with a bunch of scholars who are actually very good scholars, very productive, publishing in the right places. And they came out of, European style PhD programs where it was dissertation only basically. So like it works, but you have more options if you come out of a US um, PhD program, but you also have to put yourself through more hell. So like weigh the pros and cons of that. I don't know. Um, the second question is in the interest of speaking truth to power domestically, as well as internationally, what's your take on New Zealand's foreign and defence policies? And with an election coming up in September 2020, how do you assess the foreign policy outlooks of the major parties? Is this is about New Zealand foreign policy? Yes. So, is this the same guy? Yes, um, the same guy. Okay. So, so, I think New Zealand is stuck in like an old paradigm, right? I, I don't have a lot good to say, mm. but I don't, I mean, it, it could be worse. The... <laughs> They basically operate a liberal foreign policy, and nobody's really written about this, but liberal foreign policy depends, like whether that makes sense, depends entirely on your external environment. And the external environment that we're that is emerging now is one of like rivalry, competing blocks of influence, very relative gainsy, right? Military spending on the rise, weapons proliferating. There's a there's a like an anarchical I mean, fucking Trump, Jesus. The, there's an anarchical element to like how the international system is like being steered right now. And liberal foreign policy functions very well in a 1990s world where there's only one great power and that great power is a liberal democracy. And everybody's invested in making uh, international rules work for everybody with power, you know? Very and like that's not the world we live in, and that's what New Zealand's foreign policy is optimized for, which is very literally and IR wise very unrealistic. To the person answering this, asking this question, New Zealand politics is very benign. Uh, the biggest story this week, or one of the biggest stories, was a radio station show getting cancelled, and that the prime minister was called to question. Because a fucking radio show got cancelled. That a, is the a, extent of our politics. So when a, we talk about foreign policy, triviality to the politics here. But I, that's uh, that's nice in a in a sense. But it's also a little bit your head is in the sand, right? Yeah. So I was on 
I was at Paul Eagles, start of Paul Eagles campaign, who's a MP for um, Labour MP for Ronatai area in Wellington. We had a big board, and the most of thing that was written up was Save Radio New Zealand concert, which is the radio station that was cancelled, and everyone came up to complain about that. But I mean, New Zealand's very far from everything, you know. The problem is like when you're looking at trend lines, the Pacific Islands being exposed to strategic competition for the first time in a long time, that's a huge problem that you need to get ahead of. The fact that economic interdependence is no longer an unmitigated good and is actually a source of strategic vulnerability, that's something that you're way behind the curve on, that you need to get ahead on, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you, the, the policy community here self-censors constantly on China and is very worried about what China will think and do about everything is a huge problem that you need to fix. Right. Military is not the answer to most questions, Mm -hmm. though, you know. And so it's like it's there needs to be more of like a security mindset, a strategic mindset, not taking security for granted. But that doesn't mean you need to have like long range standoff cruise missiles. Right. It's So you don't need to replicate the U.S., which, frankly, is what Australia is trying to, I think, do. But you do need to like you need to be with the times a bit. And I feel like foreign policy is lagging. And here I was hoping we were going to build battleships. Well, you never know. New Zealand's actually in a good position to leapfrog tech, military technology-wise because they didn't. there's not a whole lot of legacy systems and capabilities because there's not a whole lot of systems and capabilities at all. And so <laughs> you've basically got manpower and brain power, you know? And like that kind of sets you up well that if you were going to do a surge in military spending... You could go straight to like autonomous systems and drones and that kind of thing where it's like you can function militarily and punch above your weight and kind of at less risk than if it was like manned aircraft and that kind of thing and cheaper than if it was buying F-22s and F-35s. And I don't know, like all is not lost, but there's not a strategy or strategic imagination here or a strategic consciousness here. And I worry about that. The final question is anonymous and it's, who are these Gen Zers on the podcast and where did they come from? So Gen Z means Gen Z, just so you Gen know. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, English yeah. thing. I've, I've gone back and forth with Pete on that. So you guys can like speak to yourselves who you are in one second, but I'll just say like the, the premise of this show is like everybody on it is a former student of mine and they all did well except for Jake. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm just kidding. Um, Jake did well too. So like it's former students who did well, showed an interest and were like, had something to offer to like help out the show that was like a little different. And I'm trying to have this show be accessible to people who are not just like beltway foreign policy experts exclusively, like to try and be inclusive. So I recognize that I don't speak Gen Z, and so I need people on the show who do. I have a written answer from Gary for this. I was asking Van AMA levels of advice because he was one of my master's professors, and he told me about the podcast. I figured these things were like being in one of his classes, except I didn't have to pay $900 a paper. (laughs) So I decided to hop on the bandwagon. That's from Gabby. That's from Gabby. Nice. That's smart. Paper means course, so she didn't. She wasn't buying her papers. Uh, paper is the term they use here for course. And then Jake used to work in radio, right? Before coming into university. Yeah, I start. I started university a bit later than others. I'm 22, and I started at the start of last that year. That sounds so old. I know, right? It's like delegitimates the podcast to know. I know, what your age I know, is. I know. <laughs> and sort of, I left school at 16, mucked around for a while, decided to go into radio. Uh, trained in that for a year, did some work there, learned how to edit things, yeah. and it was quite serendipitous because I got given a sticker by Van in one of my lectures, and <laughs> I thought, hey, sticker, okay, yeah. and I went and listened to it, and I used my limited social media reach to say, hey, listen to this podcast. Van stalked me and saw that I had radio experience and he needed an editor. I needed someone who could edit and mix, and Jake's our guy for that. And so. then I've snaked myself in and slowly created and he slowly everyone started else. killing people on the yeah. podcast. Yeah. You didn't realize the kind of virus you let in, Van. Yeah. So I don't go away. And yeah. uh, here I am. Yeah. And then Pete will be back, but he's he's in like military officer training school now, but he's a. He's a journalist with an internationalist beat, but he's also a former student and 
I think he's like still finishing law school. So he's kind of like all over the place. Yeah. So I got an email from Van about two weeks ago <laughs> about it. And I accidentally sent my reply email from the same date to my dad who didn't tell me about it <laughs> until I noticed on Sunday that I sent it to the wrong person. Nice. But yeah, I also got a sticker um, in the lecture, which is currently on my laptop. And I think it got retweeted by the Magitech podcast Twitter. So it's on that. Yeah. yeah. Kiara did the was the top student in a huge class of intro to security studies. Like it was like two hundred something students and she had the top grade, I think. And I was I was a close second, right, man? Jake was up there. I was a Jake close was second, up there. right? Yeah. I was a close I was a very close second. Respectable. <laughs> I think you got an A, but like there was a number of A's, yeah. No, I love it here. I'm grateful for the opportunity, especially like I was, I was quite scared when I first came in, being a first year. It's like, what could I know compared to yeah. master students, a professor, and everyone else? But like Van said, the podcast is really accessible, and I even give it to people who don't really follow politics because mm-hmm. I was like, if you ever want to sort of crash course in what's going on today, this is a sort of good way to listen to it because it's not policy wonk language. It's sort of you know, we or to the extent it is, we break it down. Yeah. We tell you what weaponized interdependence is. We talk about the balance of power and what it means, right? And it appeals um, to Jin Zid. Is um, so that's the backstory on the show or on the the uh, the Gen Zers on the show. All right, that's it. All right, gang, that's gonna do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. Get smart. Get woke. Be like us. Uh, read World Politics Review. Rate us on iTunes. Love us. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic if you want to throw money our way because, again, this is slave labor. Peace. Peace. <laughs>